Thanks for tuning in to the Becker's Dental and DSO podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded for our Dental and DSO Review virtual forum. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Becker's Dental and DSO Review virtual forum. My name is Brian Zimmerman. I have the pleasure of serving as moderator for this discussion titled Access to Capital, What Entrepreneurial Dentist DSOs Need to Know. Got a great leader here to, to unpack this topic with us today. So we're, we're not going to waste any time. We're going to get right to it. So we're going to start with some standard introductions. Elliot, could, could you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and, and your organization? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. Uh, so I am uh, relatively new to dental. I started Select Dental Management. I'm a, a co-founder of the business uh, in 2018. And, um, and I started the, the business with uh, one of my really close friends who uh, has been a friend of mine since we were five years old. Uh, prior to starting Select, I worked in um, as an institutional investor on, on Wall Street and uh, also had uh, experience as an entrepreneur. So sort of ran the gamut of uh, investing in all different types of businesses and all different types of sizes from large multi-billion dollar organizations to businesses that had an idea and, and didn't have any employees or revenue. So the way I got into dentistry uh, was sort of by accident. Um, uh, my partner, Dr. Mason, and I uh, were together with our families in 2017. Uh, two years prior to that, Dr. Mason had purchased a practice up in Manchester, Vermont. And um, I asked him how the practice was, how it was doing and how he's enjoying it. He told me he had grown the practice over 100% in less than two years, which caught my attention. Uh, so started asking a lot of questions about how he had done that, et cetera. Um, and he also started telling me that, you know, while he had grown the practice a lot and was doing really well, uh, it was challenging to, to be a dentist and to run the business on a day-to-day -day perspective. And um, there were a lot of things that he didn't necessarily want to spend his time doing, you know, HR and payroll and all those other things. So um, I sort of, you know, we both came up with the idea of maybe there's a way that we could, you know, help practices grow and help doctors focus on patient experience and care and, and take some of those non-clinical responsibilities um, you know, away so that they could really spend more time focusing on, on the clinicians. So uh, we started that, uh, we started in 2018. We, 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 I think important to note, we, we really um, honed in on the importance of doctor and patient retention in this model. Um, and, and so we started with what we call a patient-centric partnership. Patient-centric meaning everything is focused on the patient, right? Every decision we make starts and ends with, is this a good thing for the patient? Um, partnership, meaning like we're very collaborative um, and we want to have partners that are aligned. So um, the vast majority of our practices have doctor owners, uh, not just, you know, experienced doctor owners, but associate owners as well. It's really critically important to us to, to be aligned and rowing the same direction. Um, and, uh, you know, we've really worked hard to kind of set the right values and, and vision for the company. Um, so we started in 2018, uh, partnered with four practices. We grew them organically more than 50%. Um, we had, you know, great 100% uh, doctor and team member retention. We improved patient retention. From there, we started getting referrals. And today we sit at uh, 35 practices in eight states. And it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the uh, dental industry and uh, all the different people that, that we've met, uh, dentists and, and team members and otherwise. Yeah, it sounds like a, quite a journey since, since you jumped into dentistry. So um, I, I think that perspective from where you're, you're, you've been sitting throughout your, your journey in dentistry will be interesting to, to attendees out there, folks watching this right now. 
I, I guess then the question I want to ask is, you know, what does that phrase entrepreneurial dentist or dentistry, entrepreneurial dentistry mean to you? I know you work with a lot of docs. You, you've met a lot of docs. Your, your partner's a doc. Um, what do you think uh, as far as what you've seen? What does it mean to be a dentist and an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, it, it's funny when you think about entrepreneur, I don't think the first thing that comes to mind is a, a dentist, you know, uh, sitting in a chair treating a patient. But I actually looked up the definition of, of entrepreneur because I wanted to just kind of see what, you know, uh, Miriam Webster, uh, the, the authority and all this stuff thinks. And, and they, Miriam Webster says it's a person who starts a business is willing to take to risk loss in order to make money. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think definitionally, you know, all dentist owners are entrepreneurs. And I will tell you, it is extremely hard. I mean, I don't practice dentistry. I've got a team behind me that supports myself and our practices. It is really complicated to to run a dental practice, right? There's HR, infection control, um, OSHA, HIPAA. You've got um, you know hiring, firing, technology, insurance, um, all these different things that need to be managed, and those are hard enough to manage if you had all the time in the world. But let's remember, like the dentists are really the primary source of revenue in these practices, so they're. You know, in, in most practices, they're going to spend 90 plus percent of their time, you know, behind the chair with patients. So I think it's a very challenging, um, you know, it's very challenging to be uh, a dentist owner. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, we can talk about different levels of entrepreneurship or, or however you want to phrase it. Um, but I've been amazed, even, you know, the doctors that we have that have built these amazing practices that have, you know, employees and patients that rely on them. Um, there's a lot of responsibility and, and there's a lot of risk and and, um, and and work that goes along with that. And so I've really been uh, impressed with how entrepreneurial uh, our partners are, um, you know, not just the ones that own multiple practices. And, and I think sometimes we tend to focus on, oh, how many practices do you have and so on. But but I think it's really about um, the risk all of these these folks are taking and, and the commitment they have to their patients and team members and uh you know, it's, it's been really uh, exciting to hear the stories of, of all these different entrepreneurs. And I would just say one, one takeaway from my perspective is the common denominator for our doctors. If I ask them, how did they become successful? It was every one of them will say the same thing by treating patients like family, focusing on the patient, you do the right thing for the patient. The rest follows. If you don't do that, none of the, none of the, none of your stuff matters. It doesn't matter how good you are at, um, you know, placing implants. If you can't build that trust and relationship, then you'll never have a successful practice. Sort of goes right back to that, that patient-centric partnership um, you and Dr. Mason decided to enter into. I have some other questions sort of set aside that I want to get to that are, are, are focused on. Can you share any insights into how you, you approach the team retention, dentist retention, um, and, and recruitment as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's hard. I mean, I think that the, the lesson here is that it's much easier to retain your people than to find new people, always, and particularly in this environment. So if you think about retention, it's like, what do people want, right? People want to feel valued for what they're doing. They want to feel like they're, you know, doing, and this is healthcare, right? They want to feel like they're doing and, and helping improve patients' lives and their oral and systemic health. Um, they want to feel like they're progressing, you know, both from a responsibility perspective and from a um, compensation perspective. Um, and, and so those are the things I think that, that we really focus on is making them feel like they're part of a team that's, you know, all aligned to do the right things for the patient and, 
and, um, and, and we're supporting them in that endeavor. Um, and, and so I think, you know, the doctor side of it's a little bit different, right? I mean, it starts out with, you know, in our model, clinical autonomy is, is the most critical thing. We, 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 our doctors need to understand that we're not here to micromanage, you know, what they're doing uh, clinically, and, and we're not here to second guess what they learn in dental school. We're here to support them. Um, but I think the doctors also in our model, they want mentorship, they want CE. Um, you know, we're, we're, we, we've, we're almost like offering unlimited continuing education for our doctors. Um, and we're also de-risking things for them on the front end. So if they're coming to a new practice where we're gonna have to build demand, then we're giving them guaranteed compensation. Um, if, if it's that, you know, they wanna be owners over time, we're giving them a clear path towards ownership. So I think it comes down to just stepping back and making sure that people um, are valued and liking what they do, believing in the culture and values. And I think one thing that gets, you know, I, when I started in this industry with my background, I had no understanding of what it took to build a culture. I kind of could see maybe what a good culture looked like from a financial perspective, but I can tell you that honestly, the, the metrics that you see and you talk about, and we'll talk about with what lenders look at, et cetera, it is so impacted by the culture and values of your business. If you have a healthy environment that people want to be a part of and, and, and are willing to refer their friends to, et cetera, um, you are going to have better doctor retention, better patient retention, better team member retention, and better cash flow generation. If you don't, you're going to have none of the above and you're going to have a very challenging business that it, it's going to be hard to really finance uh, over time. And so I think uh, at the end of the day, you know, it really does. There's a lot of blocking and tackling we can talk about, but it's, is it the right culture and vision and values? And are you treating people collaboratively and, and celebrating those successes? Because everyone wants to have fun with what they're doing in addition to compensation. And honestly, in this industry, I don't think compensation is, is the number one thing. Or should be if you're if it's all about compensation you're, you're not getting the values and the vision and and the culture part of it right in my view yeah and that culture piece is so huge uh i i want to ask then it shifting to sort of um the capital side of things more more directly i guess um how can middle market group practices and, and, and dso's perhaps um folks part of those in, uh, organizations watching this right now uh how do you think they can get access to reasonably priced capital? And what do leaders of these organizations really need to know about this? Yeah, so I, from my perspective, um, I, I think reasonably priced capital, it's, it's you gotta first think about like, what is your goal with your business, right? You know, I wanted to start out and I, I was looking to scale to hundred practices over five years and that was my vision and that's what I wanted to do. So definitionally, there's no way I could potentially get to that goal with a bank lender almost impossible. And we'll talk about my experiences there you know, along the way here. So you, you first start out and saying, you know, do you need debt or do you need equity, right? Equity is, is higher cost, right? Everyone wants to own, a, you know, 100% of, of everything. And, and I always say like, I spend dollars, not percentages, right? So there, depending on the growth trajectory that you're trying to accomplish, equity capital might be a component of that. And if that enables you to create more value and get to your vision, you know, more expeditiously, that's something you need to consider. And, and, you know, you'd rather own, you know, 25% of something really valuable than hundred percent of something that's not so valuable. Right. So I think the first question you know, and, and thing I see is that sometimes people are overly focused on, Hey, I want to own hundred percent of this. And, and whether that means bringing on an equity partner or, you know, financing that with buy-ins from capital partners, I think that equity option has to be something that you at least think about. And if you decide that's not a route you want to go, 
that's fine, but it, it's something that I think can be very helpful, you know, to overall growth over time, whether that's individuals within the, the business investing or bringing on an external partner that um, can not only give you capital, but also give you expertise to help you kind of get from point A to point B. If we're going to talk more about lenders specifically, um, I would also tell you that cost of capital is not the major uh, determinant of decisions for me. And we'll walk through that, I think, in, in a little bit about you know, our experiences and why I say that. Um, but, but I think, again, it, it comes down to uh, cost of capital is going to be determined by your, your amount of leverage, right? So um, I think in this market, you know, for most, you know, groups that are less than 5 million EBITDA, you're going to be looking at a cap around four times. It's probably what your lenders are going to, going to look for. Um, you know, the more leverage you have, the, the higher your cost of capital will be. Um, I think it's really important. At the end of the day, um, the lenders are taking uh, a bet on you as, as the owner of the practice, right? Um, in, in several different ways. One is, you know, can you scale? Can you grow? Um, are, have you demonstrated a track record of value creation? So, um, you know, are you able to put out projections and to meet them, right? It's all, this is all about trust. And as you build that trust and you show execution, you, you're able to get more capacity and more favorable terms from your existing lenders or for others. A lot of this to me is like building a really robust presentation and, and to show them, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's why you want to bet on me. And here's why my business is great. And here's how it's going to scale. And then as you have meetings with them, you know, as you go along, it's showing them the progress that, hey, I, I, I actually said we were, we were going to make $100 and we made $110, right? So building up that credibility, um, under-promising and over-delivering, but giving them conviction that, I mean, listen, these guys are risk-averse people. They don't want to lose money. That's the main thing, right? And, you know, but also they don't want to get into a restructuring scenario where, you know, They've, you, you, they've modeled to their superiors that leverage is going to be four times and ends up being five, right? That's, that's an issue for, for everybody. And so it's all about giving them conviction that you have an understanding of your business and that you, um, you know, can drive execution and, 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 and inspire confidence. And that's ultimately, I think, over time, as, you know, how you lower capital. I lower your cost of capital, right? And obviously, as you scale, you know, you can get some benefits from your cost of capital perspective as well. Um, but, but again, as we'll talk about, there's, there's other things to consider rather than just cost of capital in my mind. Yeah. So, so let's jump into this, uh, those lender experiences you've had and really get into that. Uh, you know, how should practice and DSL leaders evaluate potential lending partners or, or even other external partnerships that could support potential growth? Um, what, what's your experience? What are some best practices you can share? Yeah, so I think my experience will hopefully be, be helpful. So again, I started out with this ambitious goal and we partnered with a, a traditional commercial bank, uh, very low cost of financing. It was like LIBOR plus 300. It was like very, very attractive. And I was like, this is great, right? So as we started scaling and we bought, you know, or we affiliated with four practices year one, and then I wanted to keep that ball moving. Um, I realized number one, they weren't really... Uh, they weren't really willing to grow and facilitate support growth at the pace that I wanted to facilitate growth. Number one, number two, the process for drawing down capital was so challenging. Uh, it, it, it literally took, I couldn't even schedule closing dates because the amount of time and effort it took for myself and my management team just to get approvals for acquisitions. It was crazy. Um, secondly, uh, I, I wanted to build my infrastructure, my view was, yeah, I can go out and affiliate with all these practices, but if I don't have an infrastructure 
to support them, then this is going to really, you know, this could really end in, in, in failure because, you know, we need to be able to support the practices we're bringing on. And, and my lenders were looking at it in a different way, saying every dollar you spend on, on corporate, you know, that's going to, you know, really increase your leverage. And, and so I was in a really tough position where, you know, it was very time consuming. Um, they weren't willing to grow with me. Um, and, uh, you know, they weren't willing to let me invest in my infrastructure. So I had the lowest cost of capital check, but I had nothing else that really mattered. Um, and so, you know, after, you know, almost pulling my hair out here and like, you know, not knowing where to go, I had a mentor of mine say to me, your cost of capital over the next two to three years is totally irrelevant. What he's like, what you need is you need a partner who's aligned and supportive of your vision and can help you scale to get there. And, and as you grow and you get to scale, you can always refinance your debt, right? It's not like you're locked into, well, we can talk about that, but, you know, as long as you're not in some really onerous, um, you know, prepayment scenario where it's like, you know, 10% prepayment penalty after, you know, some period of time, you, know, you, you have flexibility to refinance um, and to, to kind of lower your cost of capital over time. But for me, the most important thing was, do I have lenders that are willing to support my growth and also be able to support my investments in infrastructure, which I thought were critically important. So what we ended up doing is we actually went out, we brought in a, a institutional healthcare non-bank lender um, and, and their cost of capital was literally double what our lenders cost, traditional lender cost of capital was. But they allowed us to temporarily have higher leverage levels. So covenants were more flexible. They allowed us to make substantial adjustments, right, for some of these non-recurring expenses we were making that were really important. So the definition of EBITDA is critical, right? It's not just, not all EBITDA is created equally, right? Um, the ability to have addbacks and to be, have some discretion over, um, you know, uh, non-recurring expenses is critical and really gives you a lot of leverage and flexibility. Um, you know, they also structured in a way that was non-amortizing. So while the rate was higher, we didn't have to pay principal back each year. We had a bullet after five years. So that gave us the cash flow to be able to invest in the business and do acquisitions as well and affiliations and, and growth capital projects. Um, lastly, and, and maybe not you know, least is um, you know, we got rid of personal guarantees. Would you be willing to pay an extra percent to not have to personally guarantee 10 plus million dollars of debt? I would personally, um, makes me sleep better at night. So again, I think there's all these different factors that are really honestly more important than the overall cost of capital. Um, you know, and, and I would just summarize those as, you know, the process for borrowing funds. Again, my process now is I'm in compliance with my covenants. I give, you know, 10 days notice and I draw down capital. No problem, no, no time. Um, so it's really like the process, it's the covenant definitions and levels um, it's also, you know, personal guarantees. Uh, it's, you know, is there a principal amortization or not? And lastly, and probably the hardest to evaluate, um, but you can evaluate this is how will that lender behave or react if things don't go as expected, i.e. COVID, right? So, you know, we were able to grow substantially post-COVID uh, because our lenders were supportive of our business and the way we were approaching it. Most people that relied on traditional banks, I'm not trying to bash traditional banks, there's certainly a role for them. It just wasn't the right fit for us. Um, you know, but most of those folks were completely out of the market until there was like a lot of evidence that dental had really recovered. We were out there in 
you know, as soon as the data is coming in in June and we saw utilization trends back at 100%, you know, we were proceeding with our, our prior pipeline, albeit we structured it in a little bit of a different way, but we were able to have a first mover advantage, which was really critical for us, you know, in, um, you know, capturing uh, the opportunity that was created from COVID. So I just think there's a lot more than cost of capital. It's about the relationship. It's about the structure. And so again, it's about what is the amount of capital that you need over what period of time and making sure that partner can either get you there or if, you, if they can't get you there, we'll let you refinance without you know, having to give them an arm and a leg to do so. I think that's a really excellent answer. It's, it's much more nuanced and, and deep than just price of capital, right? It's, it's, and it starts with knowing what you want to do, where you want to go. Um, I'm curious, though, before we get to closing thoughts, we're, we're running short on time already, Elliot. Um, I, I'm curious about that, that, that last piece you mentioned, which is really evaluating how a, how a partner might react uh, amid uncertainty. And, and you mentioned that that would be difficult. Um, can, can you talk a little bit more about perhaps how organizations can go about trying to evaluate yeah. um, how, how a potential partner would, would react in you know, uh, yeah. uncertain times? Well, if it's an institutional investor, it's actually fairly easy. Okay. You just say, "Hey, I want a list of your CEOs and uh, of your of your you know the businesses that you've invested in, and they should be willing to give that to you." And that's fairly common practice. And you can call up you know people that have uh, you know worked with and for these 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 groups and find out you know we for better or worse we now have a case study for you know everybody you know had a challenge pretty much. Um, during COVID, so you know you can get a better sense of you know were these folks collaborative, were they willing to waive covenants, or were they like deer in headlights and, and frozen? Um, you know, so I think you can you can sort of you know get some uh, color from people that have been there and done that. On the traditional banking side, as well, you should be able to do that too. I mean, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do that. And um, you know, talk to you know, and I would ask, talk to me some people that have. You know, where things have maybe I want to talk to one or two people where there's been a challenge and you guys have been good partners. I think that's a totally fair, fair question uh, to, to ask. But, you know, again, will the bank be willing to do that? And it's confidentiality, you know, it might be challenging, but but I think it's 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 worth understanding, you know, the way their process works to understand the potential issues that you could come into if there's a macro issue like a COVID issue or a micro issue big doctor producer, God forbid, gets hit by a bus, right? EBITDA is pressured. Like what happens? Are you in restructuring or are they giving you the ability to, you know, to, to kind of normalize EBITDA for when that doctor was around? So, you know, I think it's, uh, again, it's, it's nuanced. It's not easy, but, you know, I think there are ways you can, you can find out. You can also ask your peers and other folks that have dealt with that bank or, or, or that, um, that group and, and get color that way as well. Well, Elliot, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. I think I think your experience should be really useful to a lot of folks listening right now. Um, any final thoughts? Any parting word, uh, words of wisdom? Anything we didn't get to you, you you'd like to mention before we sign off here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, no, I appreciate the the questions. Uh, this is this is all really important stuff. I, I think you know the only thing I would I would I would leave people with is that. Um, you know, it, this is an evolution, it, you know, none of us are, are perfect. It, it, it takes time and it looks, you know, you can look and say, oh, I grew to 35 practices. Like you're, you're not seeing all the challenges and mistakes and things that we made along the way. So I think it's, you know, having a good plan, um, having the right people 
um, and, and also just creating alignment in, in that, again, that culture and that val those values and, um, and, and making people accountable for their role in helping you to provide care uh, or experience and, and to grow you know, your practice or your organization. So uh, you know, don't feel like uh, this is easy. It's not um, even you know, folks that have grown substantially, uh, almost all of them have hit substantial speed bumps, including myself. And so um, you know, keep, keep the end in mind and, and keep plowing forward hard and, um, and you'll get to, to, to wherever you wanna to get to over time. Some great words to end on there. Thank you, Elliot.